You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Mark Galis, in for Judy Ansel, who's away this week. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Blake and Ulig and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124. Since 1972, the Blake and Ulig law firm has prided itself on providing comprehensive legal representation to labor organizations and their affiliated benefits funds on a local, regional, and national basis. Find them on the web at blake-ulig.com. The IBEW supports the Heartland Labor Forum. IBEW Local 124 has been wiring Kansas City since 1905. If you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBEW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their generous support. On tonight's show, we'll talk with journalist Lawrence Tabak, author of Foxconn, who reveals how a Taiwanese company conned Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin and how corporations are steadily transferring taxpayer money to themselves and benefiting consultants, politicians, and contractors at the expense of the working class. Then, the Supreme Court will soon decide a case involving the interpretation of federal regulations by the National Maritime Fisheries Service. What does that have to do with labor? If the court undermines a legal doctrine called Chevron deference, unions may be in trouble. In the news, Elon Musk asks a federal court to rule the National Labor Relations Board is unconstitutional. Why are a few anti-union Republican senators signing pro-labor letters? And the Department of Labor issues its final rule on the classification of workers. Our feature at the end of the show is Remember Our Struggle with Ariana Blockman. And now, the news. This is the news from our side for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. After the NLRB issued a complaint against SpaceX in early January for illegally firing workers who were critical of Elon Musk, Musk responded last week by filing a lawsuit against the NLRB, arguing that the board is unconstitutional. Musk's lawsuit is closely patterned on a case currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court challenging the use of administrative law judges by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The lawsuit claims that the board's use of administrative law judges to decide cases infringes on the constitutional right to a jury trial, thereby violating the separation of powers. The suit also contends that it should be easier for the president to remove the members of the board. While the members are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, they can only be removed from office for cause. All in all, the lawsuit characterizes the board's structure as, quote, the very definition of tyranny, end quote. Challenging the constitutionality of the NLRB is not new. Catherine Fisk, law professor at UC Berkeley, told Bloomberg, quote, What SpaceX is doing here is exactly what companies did when the NLRA was first enacted, and their corporate lawyers told them it's unconstitutional and they didn't need to comply with it. For two years, they flouted the law, and for two years, they got away with it, end quote. In 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court decided the Jones and Laughlin Steel case, which ruled that the National Labor Relations Act was constitutional as an appropriate exercise of congressional power under the Commerce Clause. However, since there are now six conservative justices on the court who have shown themselves to be no friends of organized labor, 
Management lawyers have decided to take another run at it. Members of the U.S. Senate have been busy sending letters about ongoing labor issues. Last week, a group of more than 30 Democratic U.S. Senators sent a letter to 13 non-union automakers, including Tesla and Toyota, Volkswagen and Hyundai, asking them to remain neutral in efforts by the UAW to organize U.S. auto plants. As reported by Reuters, the letter states in part, we believe a neutrality agreement is the bare minimum standard manufacturers should meet in respecting workers' rights, especially as companies receive and benefit from federal funds related to the electric vehicle transition. Earlier this week, another group of senators sent a letter to Amazon, taking the company to task for its mistreatment of its drivers for engaging in a slew of unfair labor practices. A few of the signatories to this letter have raised some eyebrows, as GOP Senators Josh Hawley of Missouri and Roger Marshall of Kansas and J.D. Vance of Ohio joined 26 Democrats in signing the letter. None of these three is considered to be a great friend of labor, though Hawley has paid lip service in the past by visiting striking UAW workers in St. Louis back in September. The AFL-CIO gives Hawley a lifetime rating of 12 with respect to labor issues. That's out of 100. And the UAW gave Hawley a big fat zero when he was evaluated in 2019. Finally, the U.S. Department of Labor announced this week its final rule for the classification of workers. The rule change, which will be effective as of March 11th, repeals a Trump-era rule that focused solely on a worker's control of their work and the opportunity for profit or loss and replaces it with a six-factor economic realities test. EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, did an analysis of 11 occupations where misclassification is common and determined that workers in these occupations lose out on nearly $10,000 per year in wages and benefits when they are improperly classified as independent contractors instead of employees. The Labor Department and employment lawyers have downplayed the notion that the new rule will trigger a mass reclassification of workers in this country, though the Center of American Progress has estimated that as many as 27 million workers could be affected. The news from our side was read tonight by Mark Galis, Tom Gebkin, and I'm Stephen Hill. Will it still racing down the trest- but that blood had never burned in her veins. Now here she's got a house up in Fairview. In a style she's trying to maintain. Well, if she wants to sleep That was Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Good evening. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I am your host, Zhong Jingli. And on tonight's show, we will be talking to Lawrence Tabak. Uh, Lawrence is a Midwest-based journalist and independent writer. He recently published a very interesting book called Foxconn, Imaginary Jobs, Bulldozed Homes, and the Sacking of Local Government. Welcome, Larry. It's so nice of you to join us. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I was surprised to read from your book that you actually started the investigation of local economic development projects from Kansas City. This was quite a few years ago. But it was really sparked by a major civic investment in the uh, convention center. And I began writing a story for the local business journal called Ingram's. The idea was sort of take a look at what the convention business looked like and what this brand new gigantic convention exhibition center would do for the city. And the deeper I got, the more troubling topic became 
and in the end, it ended up being an expose of sort of the over building and overhyped hopes for this type of civic investiture. And in the end, I sort of came down on the side that it was a misplaced hope that you could engender a huge revitalization of a civic center of a downtown simply by building a large convention center and hoping that that would spark all kinds of ancillary development. And that story has very similar content to the story I wrote about the Foxconn development in Wisconsin, in which many of the same hopes were raised of job development, of ancillary spending, of revitalization of a moribund manufacturing sector. And once again, I came up with the conclusion that there was more hope, and most of that hope was uh, false hope. A similar story of misplaced hope, probably in a much larger scale. So in your recent book, you detailed the story about Foxconn. Just to make sure everyone knows about Foxconn, it's a Taiwan-based manufacturing company. And in fact, it's the largest contract manufacturer of electronics in the world. Right? Like people's cell phone, TV sets, many of them are manufactured in large factories of Foxconn. So could you give us some background on the Foxconn project you have been investigating in Wisconsin? Sure, I think that's a good introduction in terms of the company. I would add that the scale of that company's um, operations are sometimes um, overwhelming. They have somewhere around a million employees worldwide. And some of their factories are not factories the way we think of factories. They're more like industrial cities with hundreds of thousands of workers housed and working in the sort of an isolated compound. When I started this story, it was because there was a big splashy announcement at the White House in the summer of 2017, in which Donald Trump headlined a series of mostly Wisconsin politicians who were pleased to announce that the company Foxconn was committing to a major industrial development in the state of Wisconsin, a state which had been a leader in manufacturing for decades and decades, but like most of the manufacturing sector in the United States, had seen a major downturn in employment. And so it was seen as part of the Make America Great Again campaign of Donald Trump, in which he promised to revitalize manufacturing. And here, this Taiwan company, with most of its assets in, in mainland China, had arranged a promise with the governor, the Republican governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, to do a huge factory complex that was promised to involve $13 billion of investment somewhere in that vicinity, 10 to $13 billion of actual investiture, and employ 10 to 13,000 new jobs. And of course, that's a, a huge number for a governor who was getting ready to face a challenging re-election. This was seen as a major, major coup for him. It was not only located in Wisconsin, a swing state in the um, presidential election that had helped elect President Trump, but it was also in the, the very district of the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. So these were sort of an odd confluence of things that were happening. That's the context. So what did you find? What do we actually see in terms of job creation or in terms of like, for example, tax revenue for the local governments, did any of them become a reality over time? Well, as I began to look into this story, I was not many days into sort of my initial exploration. I was not familiar with Foxconn. I really didn't know much about this industry, which was centered on building large screen displays, like the kind that you have in your living room, big screen TVs. Uh, by the way, an industry which has never existed in the Western Hemisphere. All the screens that we use today are built in Asia. 
I began to find some troubling information and and suggestions. One of the first person I interviewed was an American expert in the display industry, and he was completely perplexed at how this could actually be done based on his understanding of what the supply chains were and the required expertise, the cost of construction in the United States. He just didn't see how it could be physically viable. One of the things he told me, he said, Foxconn is famous for making these large and grandiose promises, but not fulfilling them. So right away, there were hints that something was awry. And as it turned out, the few days of due diligence that I did might have exceeded the entire due diligence of the state of Wisconsin, because I remember distinctly an interview with one of the key figures in bringing that deal to fruition and getting it authorized. And there was a $3 billion incentive package that was put through the state legislature in a matter of weeks. It was a rush job and there wasn't a lot of um, background work done. But he was interviewed and said, well, weren't you concerned about the history of Foxconn? Because A, they had a history of making big promises of economic uh, projects that didn't come to fruition. And B, they had a history of troubling relationships with their workforce. Most famously, the suicides in their big factories where distraught workers were jumping off the top of one of their high-rise dorms. And that got a lot of publicity. Google Foxconn, and you're going to find that story in the top 10. This is uh, not a, a deep dive into the company. He was asked whether he had looked into these things, and his comment was, no, we didn't do any of that. But behind that was the fact that driving this was not a deep understanding of the economics of the business and the industry, but the desperate need for the returning governor, Scott Walker, to garner voter support because his um, approval ratings were rather low. He had run for president and he needed that spark. So this is my assessment that they didn't want to look deeply into the nature of the jobs of the industry because they needed this for their political future. Now, to answer your question, did they ever build a factory? And the answer is nothing that was even close to what they had promised. They did put up some buildings and they have employed some people, although it's often unclear exactly what they're doing. There's some modest assembly work being done on that site, but the amount of investiture that was done by the local governments, the municipalities, was hundreds of millions of dollars of debt to build roads, to put in infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, to build the internet infrastructure, to put in a giant pipeline right to Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. one of the last great sources of fresh water in the world. And they did this all on the promise that there would be a giant Foxconn factory making these beautiful TV screens, LCD display screens, and employing over 10,000 workers. And the justification for the state spending all this money were those jobs, that they would create jobs, and those jobs in turn create tax revenue. And eventually, maybe in 30 years or so, it could pay back their initial investment. So eventually, it comes with huge trade-offs. You also interviewed people whose actual life was seriously affected by the project. Yes, because the prospect of a huge new industrial complex and the suggestion that it would be not only a big employment center, but would spark an entire new cluster of high-tech development. They even christened the area Wisconsin Valley as a, a play on Silicon Valley. So there was this expectation that something grand would happen. Once that was taken as a given, it justified a lot of other activity. It involved a requirement that there be sufficient land available to give to Foxconn for this factory. And the local municipality in that area took it upon themselves to create one of the larger industrial parks in the country. So they went to farmers 
and homeowners and said, we're going to need your land for roads for this factory. And we will be applying our powers of eminent domain, which allow us to basically buy your land. And that was an enormous amount of pressure on landowners. And some of them included family farms that had been in their family for generations. Approximately 75 homeowners were told that their houses were going to be confiscated by eminent domain. And in the end, the local municipality ended up owning something like 3,600 acres of land available for commercial industrial development. They had the powers of basically a landlord to sell this land to whoever would want. As they said on numerous cases, if Foxconn doesn't want it, someone else will. But they never asked people, are you interested in turning your, your bucolic rural homeland into an industrial center? There was never a, a, a vote. There was never a public forum in which they could s- express their desire. This was presented to them as a done deal. It was basically just a very top-down decision. Absolutely. From the White House down to the governor's office, down through the legislature, right to the town council. And they all were basically aligned in making sure that this large parcel of land would be taken from its owners and converted into a industrial park. Given this kind of political and economic cycle, what possible remedies you think we can consider to counter this large development complex? Because it's not just Foxconn, it's not just Wisconsin, right? That's a great question. And, and it brings up the whole realm of economic incentives, because the whole process of bringing Foxconn to Wisconsin was quite a convoluted process of one state bidding against another state and raising the the stakes to the point where they would get the project. And one of the lessons for this, and maybe one of the changes in policy that could eventually be effectuated, is that there should be a recognition that Ohio bidding against Michigan, getting bidding against Wisconsin and North Carolina. There were seven states that were throwing money at this project. Is a zero-sum game that it, it, the, the economic prospects of the country are not enhanced by taxpayers in one area outbidding taxpayers in another area to grant incentives to a company that will build a factory, irregardless of incentives, if it's economically necessitated, because the investment that they make is so much grander than those incentives over time that it overwhelms the the initial tax incentives. So the first thing that could be challenged is it doesn't make sense for the United States to continue to allow tax revenue from one area to be bid against tax revenue from another area to help successful profitable corporations cut their costs of building factories that they would probably build anyway, and which CEOs continually tell researchers they would locate for reasons other than incentive. It's not the highest bidder necessarily that makes the factory land where it is. There's other factors. For instance, companies need to recruit good employees, and they're going to look at things like that. But for a governor to say, well, the way we'll get more factories in our industrial development is to have better schools, that may be true, but it doesn't help them if the election is six months ahead of them. That's a long-term investment, right? Making sure that their primary, preschool, secondary schools are top-notch, that their universities are churning out really good, highly qualified engineers. Those things are long-term investments. But Everyone who has researched this kind of situation comes down on the favor of you're better putting your money there than in giving it to a corporation in a cash handout, hoping that they will come and stay in your community. It's a great case study, and I I recommend people look into it in greater depth because there's lessons to be learned from this. And hopefully maybe a politician or two will also read the book. 
since the whole thing seems to be so top down, maybe part of the solution is bottom up. That's why I was wondering if you think labor organizations or other you know, social groups or anyone deeply concerned about the complex may play a positive role in this process. I think it does point towards the importance of awareness mm-hmm. and Certainly grassroots organizations and, and unions play a role. When Foxconn came in their final selection process, they looked at two areas in Wisconsin. One was in an area that had a accommodative local government, and the one next door had a more skeptical uh, group of politicians and, and leaders and, and a mayor who looked it over very carefully and said, my job is to protect my constituents and doing this project in our jurisdiction would not be in their interest. And he said, no, you're not coming here. We're next door neighbor. They said, sure, we'll do everything you want. And the quality of those leaders made the difference. And those leaders are on the, the ballot every few years. So votes count and the type of people that you elect make a difference being educated in the impact that those people can play in your lives is vital. And and historically, unions did a very important part of that education. They told people, they said, this, this, you know, these candidates are going to fight for your interests. In the absence of those institutions, other results are liable to happen, and we've seen the, the results. We are talking to Arthur Lawrence Haybeck, who had a recent book, Foxconn Imaginary Jobs, Bulldozed Homes, the Sacking of Local Government. And the story Larry detailed is not in the Midwest or in the U.S. We are seeing capital without diligent monitoring or regulation is taking advantage of local governments and working class and argue for a much better deal for themselves while devastating the entire economy and society. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Hi, this is Maria Hall, co-host of Law and Disorder. Thank you for joining us on Tuesday mornings, 9 a.m. here on KKFI 90.1 FM in beautiful Kansas City, Missouri. We're now moving to Monday, 7 p.m. as of January 2024. That's Monday, 7 p.m. Lawn Disorder will be now broadcasting Monday evening, 7 p.m. So keep it locked in right here to KKFI 90.1 FM. Puzzled by the news? Wanting to learn more? Understanding Israel-Palestine airs every Friday at 9.30 a.m. Locally produced but focused on national and international events, the hosts of UIP interview scholars, journalists, activists, and others about the ongoing conflict in Israel-Palestine. Once again, that's Understanding Israel-Palestine every Friday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKFI. Dusty road Out of your dust bowl And westward we roam Through desert so hot And through mountain So cold I've wandered all over Green growing land Wherever your crops are I'll lend you my hand On the edge of your cities See me and then I come with the dust And I'm 
What you just listened to is Pastures of Plenty, a Woody Guthrie song performed by Odetta. I'm Tom Gepkin, president of CWA Local 6360. Later this month, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in a case involving the assessment of fees by the National Maritime Fisheries Service on fishing vessels in the Atlantic herring fishery. You might be asking yourself, what does that have to do with unions and organized labor? Well, it's something called Chevron deference. Heartland Labor Forum programmer and labor lawyer Mark Galis, one of our own, is here to talk about it. Hi, Mark. Hi, Tom. Will you tell our audience and myself, what is Chevron deference? Sounds like a band, doesn't it? Maybe uh, saw them at the hurricane back in 93 or something like that. Uh, Chevron deference is a legal doctrine, but, but before we get into that, I probably have to talk a little history. Uh, in the 1930s, in the New Deal, uh, there was the creation of what has become known as the administrative state. Some people use that as a pejorative. Other people use that as a, uh, a welcome sign of progress, where executive agencies were formed to perform functions that otherwise had been judicial or even legislative. Examples would be the National Labor Relations Board, Securities and Exchange Commission, Social Security Administration. The idea was to have subject matter experts in these various fields, whether it be labor or tax or uh, securities, etc. So let's take the National Labor Relations Board as an example. The NLRB has administrative law judges or ALJs who decide cases, and then the board serves as an appellate court, essentially, and their decisions then interpret the National Labor Relations Act. Now, that's a traditional function of the judiciary, deciding you know, what the law says. Uh, they also engage in rulemaking, consistent with the National Labor Relations Act, which is a traditional function of the legislative branch. So most of these agencies were found to be constitutional in the 30s and the 40s. Uh, court, the Supreme Court, after some hemming and hawing, finally decided that uh, most of the New Deal was constitutional to the extent that it was an exercise of congressional power under the Commerce Clause. So as agencies interpreted their governing statutes, courts had to decide how much weight to give an agency in its interpretation, whether there's no deference at all or you go all the way to complete deference, what they say goes. So in 1984, the Supreme Court decided a case called Chevron versus the Natural Resources Defense Council. And the issue was the Environmental Protection Agency's interpretation of the Clean Air Act. The court in a six to nothing decision, that's an odd number because Justices Marshall, Rehnquist, and O'Connor were all recused for various reasons. The court held that a court should defer to a federal agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute if that interpretation is reasonable. And in this case, they found that the EPA's interpretation was indeed reasonable. So the net effect is that one of these federal executive agencies can essentially define its own statutory authority. Uh, Chevron, in the, what, 40-some years that almost, about 40 years that it's been uh, in place, is one of the most cited Supreme Court cases, more than 100 times in the Supreme Court and literally thousands of times in the lower courts. However, it's not exactly been met with uh, universal acclaim, as we'll see. Well, I mentioned in my introduction the fisheries case earlier. What does that case have to do with organized labor? Seems like a strange juxtaposition, I, I understand. <clears throat> so next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear argument in two cases that have been consolidated. One's called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo, and the other one's called Relentless Inc. versus the Department of Commerce. Hopefully that one gets top billing when they decide this case. That's kind of a relentless is kind of a, a nice name for a case. So the issue in that case is there's a regulation that's been promulgated by an organization, a federal executive agency called the National Maritime Fisheries Service under the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Not things that get discussed much other than people who handle maritime law and fisheries law and that sort of thing. So this particular statute permits the fisheries service to require fishing vessels carry observers on board for the purpose of collecting data uh, for conservation and management. There are instances where the act expressly 
permits the fishery service to assess fees on the fishing industry to defray some of these costs. So the regulation at issue applies to the Atlantic herring fishery, which extends from Maine down the eastern seaboard. None of the statutory provisions expressly permits the assessment of a fee that apply to that fishery. So the fishery service adopted a regulation requiring a fee where some, some conditions were met. Various companies challenged the regulation in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Um, the court deferred to the agency's interpretation of the regulation and upheld it because it found that the statute is ambiguous and that the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And it's important to point out that the reasonableness, what a court will say is, even if that's not how we would have interpreted it, if the agency finds, if the agency's interpretation is reasonable, that's good enough for us. So in this case, it was a two-to-one decision. Judge Walker, who was a, a Trump appointee on the, on the D.C. Circuit, he dissented. And his position was that either the court misapplied Chevron or Chevron ought to be overruled or at least clarified. So the case went up to the Supreme Court and the, you know, the, the sought cert to get granted to review the case, and the Supreme Court took it. And they took it specifically on the issue of whether Chevron should be overruled or clarified. That's, that's what they're looking at only. So as I mentioned before, you know, whether a court should defer to a federal agency's interpretation of a statute directly affects how the NLRB operates. So the decision in this case uh, would affect the NLRB, but basically all federal regulatory agencies. So when you say the Supreme Court's going to look about only, they're not looking at upholding it? Well, they could uphold it. I mean, their decision could be not to overrule it. But that's, they're, not, they're not looking specifically at the merits of whether there ought to be fees for this fishery. It's more about the method of interpretation, and that's what they're – because the, what the Supreme Court does is when, when parties apply to the Supreme Court for review, they have a list of issues that they want the court to possibly take. The court can take one of them, all of them, or none of them and just pass it and leave the decision in place. So here they're specifically – taking up the question of whether or not Chevron should remain good law. And Chevron deference has been in a long-standing law. What happens if this is eliminated? Well, if Chevron goes away, then courts would no longer be required to defer to an agency's interpretation of a statute. So take the NLRB. You know, we've everyone agrees that the NLRB is the subject matter expert when it comes to labor law. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in this case, if Chevron went away, courts would not show any deference to how the board interprets the National Labor Relations Act. We've talked on this program before many times about the pendulum of labor law. So the, there's a pendulum that swings from conservative to liberal interpretations of the NLRA, depending on who's in the White House, depending on you know who's on the court, depending on who's on the board. And, you know, that happens every administration. It goes back and forth. There's really no middle ground. Courts, on the other hand, they, they change more slowly. Like you might see a liberal to conservative or, or conservative to liberal transition that takes 8, 10, 12, 15 years. On the board, it usually takes about four, maybe six years. Um, federal courts today are generally more conservative than they were 15, 10, 15 years ago. Trump's appointments, you know, George W. Bush has a number of appointees still on the court. And so the the biggest concern is if if courts are left to their own devices, being conservative, being uh, not subject matter experts when it comes to the National Labor Relations Act, the concern is that judges are going to read the NLRA very narrowly. So, for example, you know, they might classify more workers as independent contractors and employees, meaning that fewer workers can organize. They'd make it harder for employees to organize. Uh, they might give employers free reign to make anti-union speeches and presentations. So when you have a more liberal board, like now, we have a Democratic administration, we have a Democratic majority on the board. So when, when a board like this interprets the NLRA more broadly— courts will no longer need to defer to that. 
And so the result and what, what people are really concerned about is that you're, you're going to have a much more narrow interpretation of the statute even during Democratic administrations and a Democratic NLRB. Well, we've kind of focused on what would happen with the NLRB, but if this uh, Chevron deference goes down, it has wide-ranging implications across the board on all kinds of stuff. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you can take basically any federal regulatory agency. There's a case now, it was mentioned earlier, about the SEC. And they have a similar system where they have administrative law judges who decide cases. And there's a case before the Supreme Court in which they're trying to you know, do away with that as a violation of, of the Constitution. But basically any federal regulatory agency which exerts power. The, part of the reason for this is sort of a, a means of explanation is, you know, the, the, the president is charged with, with executing the laws. I mean, the president basically is the executive branch, right? And so part of the theory in the New Deal was one person can't execute all the laws by him or herself. And so that's why there have been all these agencies created to help the president execute the laws. Some people would argue that we've gone too far, that we've run amok, because now you have these administrative agencies that not only execute laws, but they make laws and they interpret laws. And so you've got you've got all in one. Um, but you know, my, my, my view personally is that that question's already been resolved. I mean, the administrative state is here and it's been here for almost 100 years. And at this point, you know, chirping about it isn't going to do a lot of good. Um, but that that's sort of the that's kind of the, the basis of why that's there. And, you know, the, the effects would be the effects would be wide ranging. Is OSHA, uh, would OSHA be affected? OSHA, yeah, that's an executive agency, sure. I mean, the, you know, you take, you take all the cabinet offices and they have, underneath each of them, they have various, uh, various agencies. You know, the Department of Labor's got OSHA and it's got NLRB and it's got Wage Now or, you know, it's got all of those. Uh, so, so, you know, the EPA uh, is an example of a, of a regulatory agency. So yep. there, there's a number of examples that would be, that would be affected by this. How about when we fly? Well, sure. I mean, railroads or, or airlines, you know, absolutely. So it would just, uh, it could potentially hurt all American citizens in one way or another. Absolutely. Because it would, it, it would give courts, the, the problem here is deciding like what the proper role is. You know, this, the people who, who, uh, rail on Chevron say, well, you're taking away a court's ability to interpret the law. Whereas defenders of Chevron say, you're not doing that at all. I mean, a court still has the obligation to interpret the law. But, you know, there's nothing that should prohibit it from getting uh, subject matter expertise to help decide what the law is. For judges, federal judges are, you know, sort of an elite bunch. I mean, they're they're more. You know, President Biden has done well by putting more criminal defense lawyers and labor lawyers and and public interest lawyers. But you know, most of the most of the federal uh, bench are corporate lawyers and law professors. You know, people ivory tower types who don't necessarily uh, know the intricacies of the fisheries service or uh, the the NLRB. You know, labor law is sort of a forgotten area of law and law schools anymore and you know, everything's focused on corporate and property and criminal and that kind of stuff uh, so this just gives courts an opportunity to hear from the experts and you know assuming that the that the experts have have made a reasonable interpretation you know deferring to that to that um, view i guess the alternative is all judges across the country have to become experts on everything well, that's right, which, you know, I, I know judges have law clerks, so the law clerks would have to become experts uh, on that sort of thing. Uh, and they, you know, they, federal judges work hard. I, I don't want to, you know, rail on federal judges. I mean, they work hard and, and they have a tough job and caseloads often are, are are heavy. But they also have, you know, good support staff in place. I mean, state state courts, you know, on as an alternative, state courts usually don't have the funds to hire a lot of staff and to have a lot of support. But federal courts are pretty stacked when it comes to 
administrative assistants and clerks and and that sort of thing. And the the courts have really relied on Chevron deference to make decisions. They have. It's been good law for 40 years. Um, but like I said, it's it's not been it's not been universally uh, praised. It's it's had its detractors even even from the beginning. Well, I want you to put your crystal ball on. <laughs> Or look into your crystal ball, and how do you think the court will rule on this? So you have a court now, nine justices, six conservatives on the court. There are, there are two justices, Thomas and Gorsuch, who have very specifically criticized Chevron, who have, who have come out and said that, you know, it, it needs to go. Uh, you have uh, the other four have— you know, sort of obliquely criticized it. You know, Alito still uses it because it's good law. Uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh, uh, who are who are closer to the middle, still conservative, but closer to the middle. You know, they they seem in in prior Chevron cases they seem more willing to to clarify how Chevron is used. You know, to maybe not throw the baby out with the bathwater to to keep it in some form. Uh, and not overrule it. The, the, the Roberts and Kavanaugh are more of, a, you know, they, they're incrementalists. You know, instead of instead of just ripping the Band-Aid off and getting rid of something, they'd rather chip away, chip away, chip away, chip away until it, until it's gone. Um, which, you know, you could argue that that's better because it's more thought out, or you could argue it's a cop-out. I mean, it, it cuts both ways. Uh, Justice Barrett, it's unclear where she stands on it, although— you know she's she's probably likely not a not a fan of it either. I I think the most likely result uh, would be that Chevron is uh, curtailed in some fashion. That it's it's limited, um, maybe limited to the point where it's kind of useless. Um, but I, I I I don't think the court would. I don't think this current group would get rid of it. Uh, wholesale in this case, uh, I, but I think they would, you know, I think they would uh, curtail it to such a point that it it probably wouldn't have a lot of teeth. You know, the the pattern for many of these cases I mentioned has been to to gut a legal principle so much that it just exists in name only. Um, I mentioned how uh, Justice Gorsuch was no fan of this case. He wrote in one case that. Uh, he doesn't think that Chevron is actually relied upon as much anymore, and so maybe it's 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 fallen by its own weight. I mean, the the fact that it's still cited and still followed in these cases, I might beg to differ. But he also adds, uh, "quote The whole project deserves a tombstone no one can miss." End quote. That's kind of his his view of it. And I have to point out that there's a major irony here uh, involving Justice Gorsuch. So I mentioned earlier that. The Chevron case from 1984 involved the EPA's interpretation of the Clean Air Act, and the court was deferring to the EPA's interpretation of the Clean Air Act. The EPA administrator at the time was a woman named Ann Gorsuch, the mother of Justice Gorsuch. So wouldn't it be poetic for him to uh, finally kill that which uh, enabled her to interpret uh, <laughs> interpret the Clean Air Act in favor of the Reagan administration. Poetic. Well, in just the one minute we have left, real quickly, how will this affect labor? The concern with labor is that you're, if Chevron deference doesn't exist and courts don't defer to reasonable interpretations of the act, then you're going to have uh, more conservative and more narrow uh, interpretations of the act, which will mean uh, harder to organize, harder to prove unfair labor practices, and just you know har- harder to act collectively um, to uh, live into uh, Section Seven of the Act. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show. I know I'm a little bit wiser, and so I'm sure our audience is too. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Yeah.
Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman, journeyman wireman of IBW Local 124. I'm not sure how we have been doing this labor history segment together now for over seven years and we have never devoted a show to Mother Mary Harris Jones. So tonight I will be familiarizing you with this beacon of originality, hope, the fight for justice, and the courage to rebuild no matter what life throws at you. Mother Mary Harris Jones didn't start as mother. That's an honorific she earned later. Getting there was quite a journey. She was born in Ireland and was one of an estimated three-quarters of the Irish population to either die of famine or emigrate due to the great famine imposed by colonization. She made her way first to Canada, where she learned a skill, dressmaking. She moved again to Chicago, where she met a man who was an iron molder by trade. They were married, and they soon had four children together. It was looking like the American dream was really shaping up for Mary, but then things changed. In 1867, an outbreak of yellow fever slammed Chicago. As Mary was to comment later, the rich simply removed themselves from the city until the chance of plague was over, leaving everyone else to their chances. Mary lost not only her husband to this outbreak of yellow fever, but all four of her children as well. Mary was grief-stricken, but soon enough she set herself a new goal. She used the trade she had learned in Canada and opened her own dressmaking shop there in Chicago. Her clientele buying the dresses tended to be the very same wealthy families who had previously had the economic means to flee the yellow fever and had, that had taken everyone she loved, and resentment for the well-to-do grew. Of her time in the dress shop, Mary said, quote, I would look out the window and see the poor shivering wretches, jobless and hungry, walking alongside the frozen lakefront. The contrast of their condition with the comfort of the people for whom I sewed was painful for me. My employers seemed neither to notice nor to care. Soon, however, she was even to lose her dress shop. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 devastated an extensive swathe of Chicago, including obliterating Mary's dress shop. Now destitute, she turned to the, to the Knights of Labor. She began working as a volunteer through them and helping to rebuild Chicago. Before long, Mary discovered more talents lying latent inside her, those of public speaking and, and labor agitation. She also found a new life purpose, promoting the labor movement and labor unions. She began speaking out publicly about the commonly wretched and unsafe working conditions, the 12-hour workdays, and low pay. Before she knew it, she became a vagabond speaker, traveling the country, speaking to unions, and helping to inspire people to fight for a better way of life for themselves and their families. She said, quote, My address is like my shoes. It travels with me wherever I go. She went on to take part in, and even lead, hundreds of labor strikes. She would often organize the families of strikers to arm themselves with mops and brooms and act as a first line between the strikers and the strikebreakers. She became so beloved and well-known, not just by the miners, but by unionists of all kinds across the country, that the honorific Mother was added to her name at this time. She was a distinct figure, with her advanced age and apparent frailty, her black dress, and her incongruently fierce fighting spirit and tongue. She became known as, quote, the most dangerous woman in America, due to her sheer prowess in motivational speaking and her popularity. She is personally given a great portion of the credit for her adoptive miners' union growing from only 10,000 members to 300,000 members in just three years. Threats to her life were made, which she ignored. She was jailed numerous times. She continued to organize marches and demonstrations, the likes of which most had never seen or heard of. One particular evil of the time, with mother, which Mother Jones focused particularly upon, was child labor. On July 7, 1903, a group of around 300 workers who were themselves mostly small children, many already with permanent workplace injuries such as missing fingers and scalps removed by unguarded mill machinery, marched upon President Teddy Roosevelt's New York estate with signs saying, We want to go to school. Many were as young as five or six years old. At the front of the march, of course, was the 73-year-old Mother Mary Harris Jones. Child labor was so normal then that it is hard to even find good statistics, but it is estimated that up to a fifth of workers at the time were children until child labor laws were passed, mostly as a direct result of this children's march and other actions. The contemporary San Francisco Chronicle described Mother Jones as, quote, she was motherhood roused to a frenzy against the oppressors of her children. 
When she finally passed away, she was laid to rest with her boys at the Miner's Cemetery at Mount Olive, Illinois, which many visit to this day, along with tens of thousands of mourners to see her laid to rest. A 22-foot granite monument memorializes her. Have a great evening, everyone. Now it's time to check the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. The calendar can be found on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash Heartland Labor Forum. The 2024 AFL-CIO Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference will be held January 12 to 14, which is right this weekend, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, for information, go to the MLKConference.org. Speakers will include Acting Secretary of Labor Julie Sue and former U.S. Senator Doug Jones. The Labor Notes Conference, April 19 to 21, at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Rosemont, Illinois, which is near O'Hare Airport. This is one of the biggest gatherings of grassroots union activists, union reformers, and all-around troublemakers out there. Cost is $185, but if you register by March 1st, it's $140. Don't miss a weekend of inspiration, education, and agitation. You can register at www.labornotes.org 2024. And one announcement there's still time to apply for the 2024 Union Plus Scholarships. Scholarship awards range from $500 to $4,000 and are available to union members and their families to begin or continue their college education. The application deadline is January 31st, 2024. More information is available at www.unionplus.org benefits education union plus scholarships. They need a shorter URL for that. That is our show for tonight. Thanks, as always, to our engineer, Stephen Hill. Next week, we'll ask, is Donald Trump a fascist? And as part of our Labor Leader Series, we'll meet Kevin Hendrickson, business manager of Pipefitters Local 533. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. Stay tuned for the Thursday night special. Tonight, it's Shots in the Night Radio Theater. Good night. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, because we are the working class and that's the place to be.
Say my name. 